Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, Audio Medicine by Green Zone Hero. Today's guest I met a little over three years ago. He is a mover and a shaker, United States Marine. He's a former war correspondent. He's got a great attitude. He's got heart and soul in everything that he does. He's clear. He communicates. He gets the job done. His name is Sean Rhodes, and I'm humbled to have him here on our radio show today. And thank you again for listening. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Our guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio is United States Marine Corps veteran and former war correspondent Sean Rhodes. Sean is the founder of Shoshin Consulting. He's going to tell us a little bit about that as we get into this interview, but it's an interesting concept, the Zen that Sean's got going on. Sean is the founder of Shoshin Consulting. He's an international expert in improving organizational performance and his work studying organizations in more than two dozen countries has been published in news outlets around the world. His clients have included companies like Deloitte, have you heard of them, ConAgra, Serta Sealy, and dozens of other similar businesses, Fortune 500 companies, large and small. Sean is the guy that's got the book out, Pivot Point. We're going to talk about that too, but I read it three years ago and I was able to pivot on a few things, but we're going to talk more about that today, And which leads to this. Sean is the author of the very important book, Pivot Point, Turn on a Dime Without Sacrificing Results. And he's got methodology that's tried and true. He has helped, like I said, companies from small to large, and he's really got it going on. In 2000, 2014, Sean was named one of the top 20 public speakers, not in Florida, not in the United States, but in the entire world by Toastmasters International. That's an incredible accomplishment. And when you hear Sean speak or you see the way he holds himself, you'll know why he got that recognition. In addition to his hundreds of published articles in that award, his videos, his nationally syndicated business column, podcasts, and his TEDx talk, Sean and his work has been featured in Time, CNN, NBC, Inc. Magazine, and hundreds of media outlets around the world. I got to tell you, listeners, Straight Out Combat Radio, I am humbled and honored and finally glad after three long years to get Mr. Sean Rhodes on Straight Out Combat Radio. Welcome, Sean. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, sir. Absolutely. So, you know what? It's been a long time coming, Sean. I apologize, but you're here now. So what we want to hear is the Sean Rhodes story. We want to know what was it like growing up in the Rhodes household? Tell us about that. Absolutely. I was pulled out of the Bay Area of California when I was 13. That's where I was born, where I'd spent the first 13 years of my life. And it was just myself and my mother, dad, whatever part of the picture. She moved me to the buckle of the Bible Belt in western, western, western North Carolina. So far west that I could see Georgia and Tennessee from my house. So I went from this like cultural epicenter of the United States where you know, all of the very liberal mindset and ideas are and tech and, and Silicon Valley and all that to this place that was what I thought, you know, when I moved there 50 years back in time, you know, they still did things in the old school way. I was so upset. But by the time that I graduated there at 18 and joined the Marines, which I'm sure we'll get into, I'd really fallen in love with that area. 
I realized they weren't 50 years behind the times. They had captured a part of America like Mayberry, you know, that was still alive and well there, where if you break down on the side of the road, there's a line of cars that'll just stack up behind you to get you back on the road, to get you fixed, to get you a ride. Everybody knew each other's business, but they also treated each other like a community. And that's something that I didn't see again until I was in the military and found a few places after that. Awesome, man. So, you know, that's like the Ranger, Murphy. Yeah, exactly. Copper Top. Is it Copper Top over in the... Copper Town. Yeah. Cop- yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a or pretty Copper nice Hill, area. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that, Sean, because that area of the country, if you study Civil War history, that area of the country didn't want to... Be, they didn't adhere to either side. They were like... Oh, they, yeah. And some of them didn't ever actually rejoin the Union. That's the big joke out there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. But uh, that's interesting. You're from a very cool area that I'm familiar with. So did you have any military in your background and why the marines man yeah well i had family members that have served come to find out in every war that we've ever been in as a nation going back to bacon's rebellion like pre-revolutionary war i didn't know that going up because my mother being from the area of california was not anti-military but she was definitely agnostic when it came to the military she had participated in a couple vietnam protest marches as a younger woman when she was in college but it was never really discussed around our house at 17 i had a choice like a lot of 17-year-olds do, figuring out what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Because college is right around the corner if that's what I want, or is it going to be another path? And I realized I could either wander the country like Kane and Kung Fu, get into adventures and travel the world like that, or I could join the military. Those were how I was going to get the life lessons that I knew I needed to have if I was going to be a successful adult. Well, the traveling the country like David Carradine and Kane and Kung Fu wasn't going to come with a steady meal. <laughs> or a paycheck. <laughs> no doubt. So I realized, well, if I can only get my life lessons another way, it's really going to be the military. And then that drew me down to what branch I was going to join because I didn't have any experience with any of the branches, but I knew what I wanted to get out of the experience. And so I looked at the recruiting pitches of the Army and the Navy and the Air Force. It was around education, benefits, travel. The Marines were the only ones that said, we still train warriors here. We're not about what we can do for you. It's about what you can do for us. How can you serve your nation by becoming a Marine? And that really hit home to a guy that had been studying the martial arts and philosophy as a teenager. That's what I wanted to do. I found the last place that was training modern-day samurai, and it was or Spartans, if you will, and that was in the Marine Corps. So that's the branch that I ended up joining. I had to get mom to sign for me because I was only 17. And two weeks after I graduated high school, I was at Paris Island. Well, you know, that's awesome, man, because most young people are vacillating. You knew exactly what you wanted to do which has borne out over your professional career to date. And we've had a lot of Marines on the show, and I've never heard a Marine say the reason why I joined the Marines was because I wanted to be a warrior. Mm-hmm. That's the first time. I'm not knocking any of the Marines. You know, they'll probably yeah. be getting calls or something. But, but <laughs> that's guarantee. pretty cool. And, and, and I have Marines that we've had, including yourself. I think that's exactly what they do is they train warriors. So tell us about Paris Island. Were you involved in sports and all that? So it was nothing to you doing push-ups? No, or? I had to carve like 30 pounds off to even get on the bus to go to Paris Island. <laughs> I was that overweight kid that you think is going to be the first one to drop out of boot camp. And because I was such a rebel in high school, and so anti-authority, the people that I knew back in Murphy actually had a pool going to figure out when I was going to drop out of boot camp. Oh, so man. No, no one expected me to pass that training. And halfway through my time at Paris Island, September 11th, 2001 happened. Right. And we thought that it was going to be like a training exercise. Like, surely they must tell every you know cycle of recruits that comes through here, yeah, we're going to war, terrorist attack. That way they could amplify training. 
we started getting newspaper clippings because back in the day we didn't have cell phones or TVs or anything. They probably still don't at Paris Island. So we thought they were just screwing with us. But to find out it was a real event, it actually happened. And we all realized if we had been to go to college, we had made a poor decision. When I got into the fleet, which is what the Marines called getting out of basic training, going active duty. When I got into the fleet, a lot of us started getting shipped to Afghanistan. And thankfully, I'd never had to climb a mountain in Afghanistan. A lot of Marine brothers and sisters of mine did. My tour came in Iraq in winter of 2002. They put us on a ship, didn't tell us where we were going. They just said, you're heading out to Africa and Europe, pack your desert gear. And so that's what we did. And I found myself in the spring of 2003 embedded with infantry units crossing Kuwait into Iraq in the initial part of the invasion. Wow. So, you know, before we get to the invasion and what that entailed, because I know that you were a war correspondent, which, yeah. is, which is really cool, maybe not in a combat area, but I know you liked it. But let me ask you this. Was <laughs> there any one thing, a couple of things about boot camp. Was there any one thing that happened in boot camp that was an aha moment, like, holy cow, this is really cool. I'm glad I did this. And then what was your graduation like when you finally got the ball and eagle and you guys went through that? Yeah, so your first question, I think I remember the moment it happened. We were on one of the, the first marches, you know, humps or rucks, whatever they call them these days. And I was at the tail end of the group because I was never the fastest or the strongest. And there was a van behind me that's where all the broken guys ended up. You know, if you fell out of the ruck march, they put you in a white van. And that was like the van of shame because nobody wanted to be that guy. And I was real close to the van to the point where the bumper kept like tapping my heels. And the drill instructors said, Sean, if you don't hurry, and we're going to put you in the van, whether you want to be in there or not. And I realized it was a mental game that I had to play with myself, that it was not how strong I was or how much endurance my body could muster. It was where I was in my head that would factor into whether I was able to complete the march or not. And when I finally did get back to the squad bay, I never ended up getting in the van, but it showed me that there was nothing in my life that I couldn't accomplish because of that very experience right there was kind of like the catalytic moment. You know, what all crystallized for me that said, Sean, if you set your mind to something, you can go for it and you'll either die or you'll succeed. But you know that those are options that you can present to yourself now. Where that set me apart from every moment after that and the rest of my life where I was in a combat zone or whether I was running businesses like I am now or working with large companies, you can't present a challenge to me that I know I can't overcome because I know that I'll either accomplish it or I'll die trying. One of those two options is what's going to happen. And I haven't died yet. So it tells me that my success rate's 100%. <laughs> that was the you know one moment that really came clear to boot camp that was very impactful for the rest of my life. Absolutely. And, you know, that's amazing how those small things that you don't really, well, you do think about them because that's all you're there. You're doing it. You're hurting. You're in pain. Your feet are killing you. You're carrying a rucksack and that van saying, whispering like on your shoulder. Yeah. Sean. <laughs> Come on, man. You can get in the van. Things are going to be good here. And you know darn yeah. well if you do that, man, you're never going to be able to live it down. So thanks for sharing that. So you graduate. Who mm -hmm. showed up and what was that like for you? It was actually very interesting for me in Paris Island and at San Diego. Right before you graduate, they gave you like a day of liberty on base. And I can't remember what they call that day, but it's a day where you don't have to be in your platoon formation. You can wander about at will go to the exchange shop. Families are allowed on base then, so you can connect with your family and your loved ones. And again, this was right after September 11th, so every base was on lockdown. They were still doing like F-16 flyovers over Paris Island, thinking it was a strategic asset the terrorists were going to hit. So we didn't know if another attack was coming. And this was in probably October, so just you know, a month afterward. Right. And 
I realized somebody was tapping me on my shoulder as I'm out there wandering around, you know, eating my first fast food meal in three months. And then, Sean, there's a young lady looking for you back at your squad bay. Now that weird, young lady looking for me. So I ran back to the squad bay, literally ran back to the squad bay. It was my girlfriend at the time. She had figured out, she was 17 or 18 at the time, figured out how to get from Hayesville, North Carolina, right next to Murphy, all the way to Paris Island. Wow. And... I was only able to spend about three and a half minutes with her, but he was there for my graduation. My mother was there. Family members came in. They asked if we could come to either your high school graduation or your boot camp graduation. What do you want it to be? And I said, I know I'm going to have worked harder for that Paris Island graduation, so I want you to be there. So I did have a good showing of my family. That was a good, good moment for me. How did you feel? How did that make you feel? Well, they looked at me differently. They saw all of us go across that parade deck dressed in the same uniform, marching in step, and they told me... The boy we sent to Paris Island is not who we're picking up right now. That there was a change. There was a change in my demeanor, in my confidence, in my language, in the respect that I was showing everyone. And one of the biggest regrets I ever had from my time in the military came that day when I graduated. I didn't go up to my senior drill instructor and shake his hand and thank him for the work that he'd put into me. I know he put a lot of work personally into me because I was a tough recruit. And so about two weeks after I got out of the Marine Corps, I looked him up because we all had access to those email servers where you could find other people, you know, just their last name. And I sent him a message and I said, I didn't get to thank you when I graduated. I'm about to get out of the Marine Corps. I know what college classes I'm going to be going to already. I want to thank you for setting me off on the right path. So I was able to finally get that message to him. Well, good for you, man. That's awesome, man, that you, of course, you never forget your senior drill, but to do that (laughs) speaks volumes about you as a person. And and so I'm sure he appreciated it. And that's awesome, Sean. Thanks for sharing that. So speed up a little bit. So now here you are, war correspondent, full-blown Marine. You're with the fleet. Mm -hmm. You guys are going in in the invasion force. Did you know what the mission was? We just knew we were invading Iraq. We thought that it was because of weapons of mass destruction. That's the intelligence we had at the time in late 2002, early 2003. We had our gas mask on us all the time. When we invaded in 2003, we were in MOP, like MOP 4, whatever they call it, you know, like like head to toe. Yeah, and that was awful, by the way, in 120 degree weather. Like the rubber boots, yeah. Gloves, all of it, man, all of it. Wow. We didn't quite know why we were there, but the beauty of being a Marine or being a soldier or an airman or a sailor is that we don't have to know. It's not a, and this is something that civilians have a lot of trouble connecting with. When they think about the military. How could you go in and invade a country? And because the civilians are looking at it from the perspective of being outside the situation, we're not only inside the situation. We're at the epicenter. We're the, we're the eye of the hurricane, and it's not up to us to question why we're there. It's up to us to execute the mission. And that's something that's really served me well after the fact in life and running businesses. That as long as I know what the goal is. The details always figure themselves out. If I keep my eye on the goal, then we'll make it happen. But for those of us that are in that position at the time, it's really more about how do I keep myself safe? How do I keep my brothers and sisters on my, my squad or my team safe? How do I make sure we all get home? That's what's front of mind for us in combat, rather than liberating a country and 50 million people being able to vote for the first time. That's the least of our concerns. Yeah, I understand that. And you're you're right. Sometimes the civilian population doesn't really quite understand that. And, you know, we always say, well, who do you want for president? And we used to say, well, it really doesn't matter because they're both commanders in chief. And, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and what difference does it make? And, you know, I didn't see and you probably didn't see this either. Their politics don't play that much of a role when you're at that squad yep. platoon company level, or really at most levels in the military. You know, we're there to do a job and the Marines have always done it in outstanding fashion, but not without a high cost. Yeah, I think I remember you, one of your talks talking about being, maybe it was in your book, 
being in a command tent, you were gathering intel or you were doing something for the command general staff or something as the war. What, what was going on in that tent? You remember that part in your book? I do. Yeah, we were getting ready. As this was the first Battle of Fallujah, which was the spring of 2004. We were getting ready to go into the city. They had just they'd murdered some contractors. The insurgents had and you know displayed their bodies openly. And they were, I think, American contractors or an international contingent. So we didn't want to let that stand. We had to get into the city. And I was, because of my role as a war correspondent, I was the only person that was there to really record what was happening for history. People were experiencing it, but no one was able to get the message out to the public. That's my job. That's what I was trying to do in the Marine Corps. And so I was in that command tent and realized that I was looking at who would later become the future Secretary of Defense. It was General James Mattis. He was the commander of this particular mission. And that was pretty cool at the time to, even as a corporal, to be in the presence of a three-star. It's like, oh, that's God right there. Oh, that yeah. person with life and death power over, over me. So I was sure to be respectful. But it was interesting to see him. He had, a, even then, a reputation being an excellent commander and a strategist that's an awesome story and i'm you know i know you probably for sure lost friends over there and you know i'm personally glad you made it back as are all your clients and family and yeah, friends absolutely and is there any one thing you know kind of like the boot camp thing a lot different you know is there any one thing that stands out in iraq that was another either aha moment or holy cow moment or i hope i sure. make it home moment something like that yeah, yeah. There's a couple of those. The one that really comes front of mind was the point when I realized what I wanted to do with the rest of my life after the Marine Corps. So I didn't know if it was going to be a high school teacher, if I was going to be a lawyer. I had no idea. Like you know, the world was my, my oyster. If I was willing to go train for it and get the certifications, but we come off of a really rough mission. This was probably in the spring of 2004 again. We get back to our forward operating base, and there's these pallets of books that have been delivered overnight on a supply train. Just the big convoy showed up. Pallets of books. Like, if you've ever been into a Sam's Club or Costco, and they have all those, like, bulk wholesale books just loaded up in, like, chicken wire. All these books were there. And they're right. all in English. And so there was a wide variety of, of titles and genres. So I asked around. And I said, what the heck are all these books in here? I didn't think they were for the Marines. Obviously, Marines don't like to read very much. That's a Marine <laughs> joke. But uh, yeah, they weren't for us. And come to find out, there had been an initiative in the States. All the libraries had been asked to donate their extra books to send over to Iraq so these people would have something to read besides books that were propaganda about how great the Saddam was. And I began looking at these books and realized there were a couple of issues with the plan. A lot of them were romance novels. And they had like shirtless guys or, you know, buxom broads on, on the cover, which is really <laughs> great for a conservative Muslim culture. You know, they were going to get a lot of that. And we're in English. Yeah. Most Iraqis don't read English. So this was a plan that was great inception, but poor execution. You know, I didn't have anything else to do at the time. And I was beat up, tired and probably knocked around that whole night. So I began looking through these books and I came across one. wasn't a romance novel. It was Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And I re picked open this book and I'd heard about it, never read it. And one of the first habits was that you can't control what's happening around you, but you have complete control over how you react to it. And it's in how you react to it that finds what happens with that of the meaning that it has for you and the impact it has. And I realized then that I could be in the middle of a war zone. I couldn't control the external circumstance then, but I could control how I reacted to it, how I internalized it. And I began choosing what I was going to perceive and feel from all of the crappy and nasty situations I was in. I could either define that as thing that wiped me out for the rest of my life or the thing built me. So it was turning from post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic growth, even though I'd never heard either of those terms at the time. That's awesome. You know, it's amazing how the science hit you in different ways. You know, one thing that brings to light when you talk about that story is how this has always been my experience is most Americans think that the rest of the world lives like we do. 
and mm -hmm. it's very different you know it's different everywhere else there's not another country on the face of the planet like the united states and the people live differently that's all i'm saying so to send them those books it's kind of incredible great plan and like you said poor execution <laughs> yeah. and not really thinking about it but at least you were able to find that one nugget in that big <laughs> truckload of saucy books that yeah. you were able to use as a foundation to propel you to what you're doing now but or at least get you started you know so you obviously made it through iraq looking mm -hmm. back on that time in, over there sean would you do it over again yeah it was something that I didn't anticipate because i had joined after 10 years of continued peace i mean we had engagements like somalia and things like that in the 90s but we hadn't had a full invasion or war since desert storm and when that hit in 2011 oh we're actually going to war now so to be part of that type of an invasion force was one historically defining so i'm glad i was able to participate in that. I was able to see parts of the world that had biblical relevance to be in the lion's den, to see the ancient ruins of Babylon, stuff I would have never gotten to do otherwise. But most importantly, it was to probably have realized that I could be in a situation, like I mentioned, that incredibly, by objective standards, awful and horrible, but I could define for myself that I had the ability to choose how I was perceiving that. And so be what I've you know, later come to call, call in my talks, I've myself a tourist in a house of heroes or a battlefield tourist is another way that i phrase that in my talks because i was able to be there to see these men and women do heroic things and there was no one else there to capture that for history but i was able to be there every point that i was and so part of my job as a war correspondent was to capture the heroism to capture the lessons learned capture the best practices and to be able to share those not only internally in the marine corps but across the world as well through the news publications that were picking my stuff up and running well then you in fact were a part of history you know not just as a just a singular marine but you were actually recording the things mm -hmm. that took place which makes it it enhances that experience for sure so you know you were part of the first wave you know you're there in the invasion force a lot of the guys and gals came back and you mentioned post-traumatic stress and even TBIs. And, you know, we, they didn't really know a lot about that. And, no. in fact, I've heard that a lot of the younger, the earlier fighting forces seem to be the ones that were having the most trouble or have had the mm. most trouble. Let me ask you this, Sean. What was your transition out of the Marine Corps like? And you feel like that you got enough out of it? Or were you just out on your own one day? If I hadn't planned for it on my own, it would have been out on my own one day. My PAPS class, the Transition Assistant Program class, was probably like know, four or five days long. And it was mostly me running around, checking out, turning my gear off. I think we might have had one or two classroom sessions where the biggest piece of advice I got was take your happy butt to the Veterans Affairs Office on base and get yourself checked out while you're still on active duty. Make copies of your medical records and dental records and don't give them up for anything. Those are probably the only two valuable pieces of advice I got. But I was really excited to get out of the Marine Corps. I was the guy that the career planners talked about when they asked Marines, do you have a plan for after Marine Corps? You're going to college and everybody says yes. Well, what I was doing in Iraq in 2004, I'd stay up really late until about 3 a.m. local time in Iraq. I would call up the admissions office of the college I was trying to get into and I'd say, do you have my admissions package? Do you have my essays and everything else? What do you need for me to get me registered? And so I knew what classes I was going to be taking while I was still in country because that's what I knew the next step was. I knew if I didn't plan proactively for it, nobody was going to do that planning for me. So when I got out of the Marine Corps, I had maybe you know six or seven weeks worth of a summer that I really, really enjoyed after being in the Marine for four years. And I was in a university setting surrounded by 18 and 19-year-olds that had never been out of their hometown. And here I'd been to two dozen countries, multiple combat tours. 
really different mindset and way of looking at the world that sometimes served me and sometimes didn't in a university setting. Well, you know what? And you hit upon something really good, planning, you know, and so often, yeah. you know, transitioning veterans don't plan. Sometimes even the ones that have been in for 20 years that are life, yeah. you know, made it a career. So extremely important. It probably didn't give you a whole lot of time to think about anything and you were off to the next thing. So what yeah. did you study in school and what, where did you go? Well, I thought I was going to be a high school history teacher. So I went back home to Western North Carolina, went to Western Carolina University, go Catamount, and studied to be a teacher. So it's a four-year program. I completed it in three and a half years because I discovered that after the military, college was a breeze. You show up on time, turn your work in on time, and argue with the professors, and that's like a passing grade. That was amazing. <laughs> like most people were willing to do that. I was like, yeah, I don't have to wake up for 5 a.m. tea. No one's shooting at me. No one's going to put a bomb on the side of the road. This is the life, man. And I'm surrounded by you know all the college kids. It's great. So I studied to be a history teacher, which I did for exactly half a semester and realized that they wanted me to work 80 hours a week for $35,000 a year. Decided that was not a lifestyle I wanted for myself or my family. And so I began looking at how I either get a more secure position, gives me a better pay, or what do I begin doing to actually manifest this life that I know I'm capable of living, but that no one's going to provide for me. And so after going back to work as a servant for a couple of years in 2013, turned in my resignation letter and said, I'm going to open up a business. And I had no idea what I was going to be doing in that business. I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. If there was any better time in my life, it wasn't going to get any better than that. I had a wife, but kids, no responsibilities really. And that was the time I said, all right, if I'm going to try this, because I know I, I'm a good communicator, I know I can coach people. I had never run a business, never been business. So I didn't know what I was going to offer the business community, but I knew that's who I wanted to work with. And so it was a very steep learning curve, but I applied the same things the Marines taught me about if you're not playing, no one's going to do it for you. So what are you doing? What's your plan in order, your op order? What are you going to do to make this a success? And in 2013, that's what I'd be executing. When did you write your book, Pivot Point? That came out in 2015, 2016, I think. After enough people telling me that you really need a book in the line of work you're in as a consultant, as a speaker, as a columnist, you need to have a book. And kept telling me that the book is never going to be more than a business card. So don't expect to get rich off of a book. I haven't gotten rich off of the book, but I have sold about 4,000 copies to people that can use my consulting services. Which is Shoshin Consulting. Tell us about the That's name and then tell us about, you have amazing skill sets. You know, I've sat down and talked to you and, and seen you in action at a couple of different events. And you have a very confident air about yourself that leadership needs these days. And tell us a little bit about the name, but more about what you're attempting to do with Shoshin. Absolutely. So the name comes from the Japanese term for beginner's mind. And that harkens back to early days when I was studying Zen Buddhism and martial arts in the samurai culture. Still practice Aikido 10 years later. I'm actually leaving from uh, this interview to get to another class so I can be on the mat again. Nice. And the name Shoshin reminds me of, one, what I'm doing in business, to never think that I know it all, to always be a lifetime learner, but to also understand that I can really be great at something, like taking the stage and delivering a keynote or conducting an interview or being on an interview. And I need to approach it from a fresh place every time because there's always going to be room for innovation. There's going to be room for improvement if I'm open to it. If I think I know what I'm doing going in and I'm locked into one way of seeing things, it's going to limit the results that are capable of that. And that's why these interviews like we're doing right now, I know why you don't script them. 
you want questions to come out naturally and you want the people you're interviewing to be natural in their responses and opens us up for things that we never could have planned for. That's where that term comes from and what I wanted to create in my own business. As far as what Shoshin is bringing into the world, what I do actually is bring the military mindset and the way that we conduct our operations into organizations, into corporations and into companies. So if you're a veteran listening to this, you knew what your chain of command was. You knew the training that you'd be provided. You knew that after every mission, you'd be sitting down and doing that after action or doing that debrief and how that would feed into the mistakes not happening again the next mission, how there would be corrective action immediately implemented so that you didn't risk the life of another person by, you know, a flagging with your rifle as you were in a room. Well, bringing that into companies is something that's desperately needed these days because most of in organizations aren't trained in how to actually scale operations how to actually take a new person that's brand new to the team and get them spun up to be one of the best in the world at what they do in a couple of months. Most organizations, it takes years to get to that point. You remember from your time in the military, you had to be good enough to save somebody's life in a very short period of time. But you can do that in an organization by using the same things that we learned in the military. So I figured out how to translate those skill sets, those op orders, the way that we do things in all branches of the military into something an organization can use to increase profitability and performance. Well, you know, you obviously, you know, the thing about you, Sean, that I see and, you know, we've talked many times, you know, not on the air, but you have this piece of your soul and you live it and you live it through your company and you live it by the way you conduct your business, which is what I think every business, if they could find their soul, they could really scale like you talk about. And, and, and it's impressive. And you've written lots of articles. I have watched your TED talk and I've read the book. I think I even refer to it every now and then. And because I'm always, yeah. I'm always at some kind of pivot point in my life. So it's like the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> so it's awesome. So let me ask you this. What do you want like the civilian world to know about transitioning veterans and especially combat veterans? Great question. I've been involved in a lot of transition efforts here in the Tampa Bay area, working with the University of South Florida and then being on some subcommittee committees to Congress where we're looking at the transition program that exists now and how we make it better. And I'd say if I was to give one message to the civilian community about what you need to know about the combat veterans and military veterans in general transitioning out is that these men and women have been trained to operate at an extremely high performing level. And often that's not a fit in many companies because it points out in a very stark contrast type of way how little everyone else is performing. And so even if you as a business owner, you're a civilian business owner, you think that your folks are doing okay, drop a couple of veterans in there and watch how fast they pick things up and how fast they take on new roles, new projects, new tasks, and how great they execute them. And it would really show you very quickly, oh gosh, maybe people could be doing better. And so it's a double-edged sword for us veterans. When I address crowds of veterans and talk about transition, the way that I phrase it to them, and I was able to do this uh, Marine Corps a couple of times last year at some of their bases, I say that you all are like a Ferrari engine. You're going to be dropped into an environment where you're going to be surrounded by Model T Fords. The Model T Ford is bad. It'll get you from A to B better than walking and faster than walking. But you have an incredible capability for high performance. The challenge you're going to run into is not pointing out to all the Model Ts that, in fact, they are Model Ts. And so what veterans have to understand as they're going into these organizations, as they're transitioning out into the civilian workforce, is to the skill sets they have, dial them back and take the time to understand what is my boss, my supervisor, my organization trying to achieve? What's their mission? This is never going to be as clearly communicated as it was when you were in the military. Your role is to take that hill. 
here's how to do it. You're never going to get that in a civilian company. So you have to take the time to learn the organization, develop a relationship with your supervisors and your team, help you understand as a veteran, what is this place actually trying to accomplish? And only then can you inject and say, here's an idea that I have about how to make it better. But you have to learn the situation first. And it's like new guy on the team. You're going to take a PFC, drop him into a high-performing team in the military, and listen to what the PFC has to say. Because the team's going to be like, dude, you, that's what your call's for, to tell you what to do, not the other way around. So veterans need to understand that that role still exists in the military world. And if they want to fit in, they want to be high-performers, learn the organization first, discover what it is they're trying to achieve, and then build the bridge from your skill set to those goals. That's how you become successful in the civilian world. Definitely some great insight, well-proven, and you're totally right in that example because it's true. And I wasn't a Marine, but I was an Army guy. And when, when I got out, it was interesting because you got into these job situations and it was like, holy cow, we could do this twice as fast and like, yeah, you know, and get things and a lot more work done. So that's some great advice and some insight that needs to be picked up on and learned and practiced. So let's just say there's a veteran out there that's just struggling, a man or a woman and mm-hmm. that just got out and they're in a dark place. They're in a bad place. They really don't know where to go, what do they do? What advice would you give to them, Sean? I'd say first take care of yourself. And that looks like mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And the VA has a lot of resources to do that. Go to the VA for a job, you know, as far as like to find a job, use them for what they're made for, which handle the mental, emotional, and sometimes spiritual aspects of what it means to be an integrated human being. So go there for your health care, go there for your mental health, for those resources and receive them. Once you got that handled, because you can't function for anybody else unless you can function for yourself. But once you get that handled, find the veterans in your community that have transitioned successfully. And you know these people because you can go to the Disabled American Veterans, the American Legion, the Marine Corps Leagues of the area, all these veteran service organizations, and ask to be connected to the folks that are their high donors, the people that really support them in your immediate area. And figure out, you know, if Jim Smith, who's the general manager of the local manufacturing plant, is an Army veteran, connect with Jim. Like, hey, man, just got out. I'm not asking for a job because that's the first thing that most people do, and it's a mistake. Not asking for a job. Just want to buy you a cup of coffee, sit down kind of learn about your transition experience, where you're at, get any insight that you have for me into what my next steps should be. You can do that with any veteran, and I would almost guarantee you're going to have a 90% acceptance rate on that. If you call up a veteran and you say, hey, man, I'm looking for work, you got any jobs, chances are the answer is going to be no. But if you call up and you say, listen, you know, here's where I'm at, just trying to connect with you, you know, figure out where you would recommend I go in the community, that's all we're going to get a positive response. They may not have time to meet with you face-to-face, but you can have a phone conversation that will yield the name you're looking for to get back on your feet. But again, handle yourself foundationally first, get right mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and then go out looking for work. Because if you show up and, you know, you're racked with bad dreams, visions, trends, whatever you got, it's going to be tough for you to hold down a job. And so I would put you in the position of sending you out to find work when what you really need is get right with yourself first. So find those resources locally in your community to that, and then go out, talk to the veterans that have successfully transitioned. We're all willing to have a conversation. I may not be able to give you a job in my company, but I point you to the people that can. That's some great advice. What does freedom mean to you, Sean? Oh, great question, man. That's something that I'd look really deep spiritually to answer. And I'd say this is going to be a spiritual response, so we may get a little deeper than you anticipated. I'd say freedom to me means recognizing that I've been given gifts, I've been given talents, and we all have them, they just differently in each of us. But I've been given these things, and I've also been provided the freedom to use them or not use them. That whole free will thing that you hear people talk about when you talk about philosophy. So I have the free will 
to execute on the gifts that I've been given, the things that give me joy, the things that I know benefit other people or not. And so every single day when I get up as a business owner and as an entrepreneur, I only get to eat what I can go. The thing that gives me the courage to get back out there in the woods and hunt is to know that I have that freedom and I've been provided it by the men and women that came before me in the military to allow me the freedom, by the NCOs and the officers that took care of me while I was in, and by the people like yourself that are connecting veterans and supporting veterans after the fact. That's what freedom means to me. It's a great answer. Do you have a personal mantra that you live by every day? I know you do. Mm. Come on. I know. Of you course. Do. I know. you. So do. I have a pretty complicated project management system that helps keep all of my plates spinning. And there's one thing that I keep in front of me every single day. And it's a, like a personal mission review, if you will. And that personal mission review, I want to be able to pull it up so I can actually read it. <laughs> it's fun being able to do is you can actually pull up the stuff and have it be meaningful. So I remind myself that I use the gifts of clarity and communication to aid other people in manifesting their own abundance. That's the mantra that I give myself every single day. And then immediately afterwards, I ask myself to execute on that. What is the result if I achieve it today that's equal success? And I make sure I do that first above all else, above everybody else's priorities and everybody else's email this is the thing I need to do today. That's what I go attack. And that's exactly what you do, and you do it well, Sean. How do people, how can they get more information about Shoshin Consulting? How can they reach you if they're interested in having you come help their company or come speak somewhere? Like I said earlier, you know, you you got one of the top 20 guys, Toastmasters International. Are you kidding me? You're a guy that we want in our next engagement, right? Sure. How do people contact you? Absolutely. If you go to ShoshinConsulting.com, which is S-H-O-S-H-I-N, Consulting.com, that's where I live on. You can see all my talks, my topics, consulting work that I do, and hear from other people like you if you're a CEO in a company or running an event, other people that have had great experiences with me, all of the testimonials are there. And I'm happy to have a chat with anybody. And if I'm not the right fit for your event, I'll find somebody that is. That's the promise I can make. So if I'm out of your budget or under your budget and you have some different need, you say, Sean, I'm really not looking for somebody in transition and team performance. I really need somebody that can talk to us about millennial hiring. I'll find that person and send them your way. Is there an email? Did you? Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, Sean, S-H-A-W-N at ShoshinConsultant.com. Again, that's S-H-O-S-H-I-N Consulting.com. Okay, perfect. So anyhow, Sean, I'm glad we finally did it. It took me a little while, but I really appreciate you coming on the show and I'm glad you made it back and I'm glad that you're finding great success and you're not only finding personal success, but I know you have surrounded yourself with a team of winners and you've been able to help so many companies all over the place. And it's impressive. It's motivating. It gets me inspired to just push a little bit harder. And all I can say is having Marines like you makes the United States a much better place. And just humbled to have you on the show, Sean. That's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Yeah.